This podcast does not constitute medical advice. All changes surrounding medications, diet and exercise should be made in consultation with a professional who can assess your unique health circumstances. Welcome to the Patterson Program, where you'll learn how to improve your health from the inside out. And now, your host, Clint Patterson. Well, it's a great pleasure to have Dr. Goldberg and Dr. Tenner from the Goldberg Clinic in Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks so much for joining us today, gentlemen. Hi, Clint. Thank you for having us here. Good to be here, Clint. Thank you. Yes. Well, you're both very esteemed, and I want to just read out your short bios before we begin and then explain to our audience why we've got you on the show and why we want to hear about what your clinic does. It's certainly very relevant to the rheumatoid audience and psoriatic arthritis audience that we have and their broader autoimmune category. Uh, And that's because you're both experts in this field, especially Dr. Goldberg, who himself uh, was stricken with severe rheumatoid arthritis and ulcerative colitis back in the 1970s. His battle to regain his health served as an inspiration for his career in working with others with chronic health conditions. He has served as Professor of Clinical Nutrition, Rheumatology and Gastroenterology at Life University from 1980 until just about nine months ago and has established the Goldberg Clinic back in 1984. His successful work with patients with autoimmune, rheumatoid, gastrointestinal issues and other chronic problems brings health seekers from all around the world to come to the clinic in Atlanta, Georgia, to address their underlying cause and get much better health. Alongside him is Dr. David Tenner, who has a degree in psychology and is the managing director of the Goldberg Clinic and the Retreat, which is nearby at Brooks. He has mentored under Dr. Goldberg since 2009, and together they have a formidable team in establishing the underlying cause of chronic health conditions and addressing them, getting patients the best possible outcome. So uh, let's go back to where it all began. And although your personal health story, Dr. Goldberg, is available online, uh, perhaps you could give us a short summary of what it was like to be inflicted with those health conditions and how you then turn them around. Thank you, Clint. I think uh, people ask me where I went to school and how I learned And uh, I have a number of degrees and diplomates, but by all means, the best training I had was undergoing, as as you did as well, uh, personal serious illness, which I was ill-prepared to handle and didn't know which way to turn. I was attending both medical and law school at Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio at the time, began to have aches and pains and gastrointestinal distress and went to the student clinic there, was diagnosed with having rheumatoid disease, was hospitalized, had a workup, and ultimately was given a variety of different diagnoses, which included ankylosing spondylitis, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, Crohn's disease, and ulcerative colitis. Wow. Yeah, and being that I was a first-year law student, a first-year medical student, I was hoping that there would be some help for me there, but it turned out, even though I was at a very prestigious uh, institution, Ohio State University and Ohio State Medical School, Ohio State College of Law, but they told me that basically that I would be crippled the rest of my life and uh, that I was just something I had to accept. So I didn't see a whole lot of joy in 
continuing my education and particularly it was discouraging to think I was going to go through all these years of training only to be ill prepared to help other people if this was the best they could offer me. So I was uh, a dropout. I dropped out of uh, school at the time and I went to uh, Florida, not too terribly far from where you are right now, actually, on the other side over on the West Coast. And I was taken in by a osteopathic physician whose name was R.J. Cheatham. And Dr. Cheatham had a um, institute there called the Natural Hygiene Institute, which was on nine acres of land. Beautiful place near the ocean in Medina Springs. And I lived there for a year learning principles of natural hygiene and had the opportunity not only to study it, but to live it. And by the end of about uh, six months, I became the health director there. And I, I did not undergo a total uh, recovery there, but I, was, I started to get better. And I was very encouraged. I was very enthralled. Uh, we were not giving people treatments. We were not giving people drugs or herbs or anything else. We simply were providing the essentials of health for them, sunlight, fresh air. Some people fasted, raw food, plant-based diet. And uh, I saw remarkable improvements in people's health from a wide variety of things, even though they were all basically doing some things that were very, very similar. Not the treatment of disease, but simply providing the right conditions for the reversal of the chronic problems that they had. At that point, I, I left and I went to the University of Texas and I studied, rather than going into standard medical route, I studied uh, preventive medicine and clinical epidemiology. And after that, I went to work for the U.S. Public Health Service, working in communities, helping to reverse, uh, investigate chronic health issues. And then ended up get, being offered a job at a chiropractic college in uh, Marietta, Georgia. Came here, earned a chiropractic degree in addition to diplomates in clinical nutrition and started both a family and a practice at that time. So your recovery from your conditions happened a lot in the first 12 months and then gradual improvements over time, whilst in parallel you were working with patients yourself. Yes. Well, I was uh, going to school at the time, and part of the beauty of being a graduate student as I was, I got to work at MD Anderson Tumor Institute I saw a lot of things done that I decided I did not want to be a part of. And I also had the opportunity to go to libraries, both at the Medical Center in Houston and the University of Texas at Austin. I had the opportunity to study uh, old medical uh, textbooks. I found that there were things done many, many thousands of years ago that were also very interesting, too, in the way rheumatoid diseases in particular were addressed. And I wrote my thesis at the time, which was a bio, I called it a biolistic approach to rheumatoid disorders. Fantastic. Now, you have then gone on and set up your own clinic. Now, how did that idea come to you? Was it scary at the time to set up something like this? Because, you know, I can't imagine there was a lot of clinics that were so bold as what your clinic has claimed and has continued to claim for the last, what, 40 odd years with great success. Right. Well, I was very passionate, still am very passionate about the work that we do. So it was a natural for me to want to be in, involved in it and work with people who had similar problems as I did. One of the things that came out of that was that I thought I had all the keys to help people at that time, 40 years ago, 40 plus years ago. I thought I'll just do with them the same types of things I did for myself. And as I found, when you go into practice, you learn a lot of things that you uh, 
uh, have to be done differently. And I learned that people are very, very different uh, from each other. So although we still have a general template of things that we do that are uh, follow a hygienic basis, everybody needs sunlight and love, and everybody needs a proper diet, we also found that people are very, very different from each other. So the challenge, part of the challenge of being in practice is to develop an individualized program for each person to help them evolve out whatever health issues that they're having. Right. Okay. And now, Dr. Tanner, tell us, what are the sorts of patients uh, that come to your clinic and how do they typically present? I imagine that if they've traveled a long way, their expectations are high. They probably have conditions that have been with them for a while and that they're they're probably at the end of their rope. Maybe you're a last resort. Is that how it feels a lot of a lot of the time? Just about every time, Clint. Uh, I think most of the patients that come to see us, their stories are not uh, too much unlike Dr. Goldberg in, in terms of what he described and what what he went through. Um, most of the patients that come in have been to just about um, to, been to all their all their kinds of clinics. Most of them have seen multiple rheumatologists. When a patient comes in with a rheumatoid issue, there's a fairly predictable course of, of treatment that they've commonly gone through before they come to see us. Most of them, they start having symptoms. They'll see their general practitioner. The general practitioner will refer them to the rheumatologist. Uh, the rheumatologist will give them a certain set of drugs. Dr. Gover mentioned there are about five or six that are commonly prescribed, usually things like steroids and methotrexate, which you have been on, and now uh, drugs such as the biologics, which are becoming more and more common. At some point, most patients recognize that that's not going to be the solution to their problems. And they'll transition away from medicine or conventional medicine into a vast sea of alternatives. There's uh, quite a few of them available now. Alternative medicine, complementary medicine, functional medicine, holistic medicine, all different forms of medicine, all under the same umbrella. And in, in those uh, realms, they'll, they'll typically either stay on drugs or start getting off of drugs, but they'll end up on a whole host of other treatments. And so by the time they come and see us, they've been on all the medical road, they've been on all the, the alternative, functional, holistic, all the other different um, modes or, or fields of medicine. And uh, by the time they come, they come and see us, they recognize that that too is not gonna be a good solution for them. So they're ready for something different. Most of them, by the time they, they come here, they're ready to work hard. They're ready to find out what's actually causing their problems as opposed to suppressing their symptoms whether they or treating their symptoms, whether they would be with drugs or all the other alternatives that are offered as well. And I'm sure Dr. Goldberg will want to extrapolate on that too. Yeah, one of the biggest challenges we have, Clint, is that we are confused with a lot of other things that a lot of practitioners are doing now. When I first started practicing, just to be a called a natural practitioner was actually unusual. Now everybody and their mother calls themselves a natural practitioner. What natural really means, of course, is different things to different people. We're very clear in that we don't practice functional medicine. I'm familiar with it. I've used textbooks with it. I've lectured to those groups. We don't practice functional medicine. We don't practice naturopathic medicine. I have a naturopathic degree. I don't use it, but I'm familiar with it. We don't do alternative medicine. As my good friend, one of your countrymen, actually, Dr. John Fielder, who lives in Ken's Australia, says uh, we practice not alternative medicine, but an alternative to medicine. <laughs> and so medicine of all types. So we don't give treatments. And so that automatically said, what do you do then? Well, we can talk about that. And we don't apply any form of medical care 
whatsoever. We want to identify the causes of people's problems and to address those causes aggressively at their roots and then to watch as the person evolves into better health as opposed to trying to treat disease. I see that as a fundamental error of most practitioners, including the people who are colleagues of mine in the osteopathic, chiropractic, allopathic, naturopathic, all these different fields are all, many of them, if not most of them, are into some form of medical or medically oriented treatment, as opposed to digging down and finding the etiological factors that are involved in each individual's health issues. Okay. Most patients, uh, once they leave the medical field or they, they leave conventional medicine and they go into functional alternative medicine, they think they're doing something different. And really what they're, they're getting is the same approach. It's still a medical-based approach, as Dr. Goldberg said. Yeah, so whether the patient's taking aspirin for their inflammation or whether they're taking willow bark, which is what aspirin is derived from, is still the same thing. Right. Yeah, I understand. Right, we're still, still approaching the symptoms rather than the underlying cause, right? That's right. Right. Okay. All right. Well, we're building up to, uh, we're building a lot of suspense as to uh, how your clinic may interact with unique cases as they come in. Before we dig down into that, can you give us uh, some of the mindset challenges that you need to overcome with patients as they come in as well? I mean, are they expecting certain things from your clinic, almost like a miracle turnaround in a short period of time, potentially unrealistic expectations? And are they also holding a degree of, of unhelpful knowledge that has been given to them from their previous doctors or alternative therapists? Yeah, those, those are really good questions, Clint. And I think the most confusing doctor that most of the patients have before they come and see us is Dr. Google. And although we are very happy to have the internet because that's the way people sometimes find out about us and we have a website, but nonetheless, today, as opposed to when I first got into healthcare, which was actually 1976, and established my own clinic, as you said, in 1984, but began in 1976, they have looked at many, 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 many different ways of treating their disease. And so the patient comes in, they basically are confused. There is a huge amount of confusion. There is a huge amount of preconceived notions as what they think they're going to get from us, which we try to some degree to uh, dispel by the use of our website and by use of sending people information. But you know, a sick person is a sick person who is oftentimes desperate, and we understand that. As they say, been there, done that. And so the main thing they're looking for is, can you make me feel better? How rapidly can you do it? And what's it going to take to do that? Even today, I can still put myself into that mindset. Yeah. And that's an important yeah. thing to be able to do. That's why I was saying I think my best training was having been ill. Because it, it took me several years to really find my way back uh, totally. So that's a very, very important part of the training. So when the person comes in, for a lot of them, they're, they're really not quite sure what to expect other than that they have heard from somebody who was a former patient that they got well with us. They've seen the results either personally with somebody they know or they've seen our before and afters yeah. on our website. Maybe they've read articles. I've written 100 or more articles over the years, and they've read some of the articles I've written. 
They've been referred by another doctor to my clinic. All they know for sure is they hurt and they want help. And they're hoping that we're the people that can help them do it. Yes. Fabulous. Okay. All right. Well, let's start to move now into how you actually go about it. And what we'll do is we'll split this into two parts, our interview today. So we're going to move into, you know, how you go about this and all the intricate details that you need to consider when treating patients who come in. And then what we'll do, because uh, it's going to be uh, quite a long interview, is we'll then split it into a second part, which is where we'll go through case studies and you can give us live real examples of people that you've worked with. So let's now move into how does every person require a different approach and how do you handle that? I mean, we all look at something like a good business model for as bad as food as it is. McDonald's, great business model. They have a system in place. You go, you know, you go in, they ask, the, they, you take your order and then they have a system in place behind the scenes to create the same food in the, in the restaurant no matter where you are in the world. Now, how do you systematize when you have a, 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 a value structure in your business where each, piece and, each person requires a unique approach? I'm just curious on how that works and how you do it. Uh, many years ago, Clint, I wrote a, an article called Infinite Variety, which is uh, you can, they can find on our, the, your listeners can find on our website under resource section. And in that, many years ago, probably in the late 70s, early 80s, when I first started teaching, I was reading a, a biochemistry textbook written by a fellow named Leninger. And in that, Professor Leninger was talking about the variety of our genetic makeup, all the genes that make up each person. And if you take all the genes from the mother and you take all the genes from the father and you create a zygote, the sperm and the egg, you end up with an individual, every individual, there's about 68 billion, not million, but billion possible genetic variations that can occur with each and every individual. So you can go over the entire planet, and unless somebody is a uh, identical twin with somebody else, yeah. you will not find two people that are the same. You may find people look very similar on the outside, but you won't find them the same on the inside. In fact, when I when I read that, I went home and I, I, I mentioned to my wife, I said very proudly to her, I said, you know, I am the only individual on the planet you'll find exactly like me. Nobody else is exactly like me. And she thought about that for a second and she said, yes, thank God. And she turned around and went somewhere else. But uh, the, the point is, nonetheless, that you will not find two people that are the same. So when we, when we label people uh, with a certain disease, whether that be rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis or ankylosing spondylitis or ulcerative colitis or any of these many myriad of other names that we have for disease, that's not that person. That's yeah. just a name for the symptoms they're expressing. Yeah. And you can have people expressing exactly the same symptoms where the causal factors beneath them are very, very dissimilar. Yes. Mm -hmm. I'd like can to do that too, Clint. Um, when I was a, a student of Dr. Goldberg's, uh, he was a professor of mine when I was uh, in school, chiropractic college, and there was a, a line that he used to uh, state within some of his lectures where it was, it was it's important to know the patient that has the condition, not the condition that has the patient. And so when we work with people and we uh, do an initial evaluation, which is about a three-week process, and we have an initial visit, lasts about 90 minutes, both Dr. Goldberg and I sit across from that patient and interview them 
so we can learn all the details of their life, all the way back from when they were a child. And in some cases, there were things that happened to people even when they were kids that, that gradually or played a role in the development of their issues later in life. And one of the things that struck me as I started to work with Dr. Goldberg initially, uh, after I graduated and got a license, was that when we sit across from people, we realize just how different their stories are. The stress they've been through in their life, the things they've been exposed to in the environment, the foods they may have eaten, the, uh, the problems they've had with the, at work or at home, and, and all the different factors that can play a role in their health. And so when, when, each, when, when a new patient walks through the door, and whether they're 5, 10, 15, 20 people with the exact same condition, I know we've got a brand new puzzle to solve that's going to take uh, some unwinding in each case. And that uh, we're not going to have the same history, we're not going to have the same exam findings, and we're not going to have the same lab work each time. So each case is its own challenge because, again, we have unique individuals, not just patients with a so-called disease. And that's really one of the, the, the things that makes practice interesting, even after over 40 years, is I know every time I walk in to see a new patient, it's a whole new story. It's a whole new experience. It's, an, it's a whole new individual. And I can see why so many uh, medical professionals get so bored with practice because they go in and they, they, they quickly give a diagnosis. Okay, here's your drug and you're out the door. Right. And then it's just a matter of seeing you the rest of your life periodically to see, you know, what, what complications are you having? What drug do we need to move you up to next? And what, and what other specialists do we need to refer you to? So every patient is, is a new experience, is, is something that's exciting for us, us to work for. And it keeps the practice fresh. Mm-hmm. This is also, Clint, a very time-intensive uh, process. Yes. When we, when we meet a new patient, we spend a good 90 minutes with them. And so in a given day, Dr. Goldberg and I might be here for 10 hours. And between the two of us, we may have seen at most seven or eight people. Yeah. Because it takes time and a lot of effort to work, to work with people to get to know them. And, you know, most people, when they come in, when, when they, we ask them about the experience they've had, with their rheumatologist, one of the biggest complaints they had is that, you know, the doctor only spent five minutes with me, asked me what my symptoms were, and then gave me a drug. And it certainly takes a lot more time, and a lot more effort to really sort out the reasons why they developed the issue to really get to know them so that we can develop an individualized plan for them. Yeah, I think patients sometimes are surprised that when we start to talk with them, it's not just about their disease. I want to get to know about them a little bit first. So we, we talk a little about, see how we can bond with whatever's going on. Just like you and I were talking before we started this interview and, you know, it turns out you live in Jupiter and I, have, I was living in Hope Sound. So we try to find some common ground there. And then we go back all the way to the patient's childhood. Who's the mom? Who's the dad? What did they do for a living? What was a child's, uh, the, the, the patient's childhood like? What did they like to do in elementary school? What was middle school like? What was high school like? What interests did you have? Did you play sports? Did you, were you on the debate team? And I, I, it, it not only kind of breaks the ice, but these are important things for us to know because we're looking at the patient while they're telling us this. We're observing the way we feel. We're looking for changes in their emotions as we talk about what went on in high school, what what happened in your first or three marriages? When did you have that kid? Were there complications in your kid? How do you like your job? How do you like your home life? Uh, do you spend much time outside? And, and so we try to keep it relaxed, but in some ways the patients, some of them probably feel like they're under, that they're being interrogated. <laughs> because in fact, we, we, although we're doing it in a relaxed way, we are trying to find out what really makes that person up. Excellent. Okay. I love it. Now, tell us, what are you specifically looking for 
other than getting to know the patient, which is wonderful and so forth, but what little sort of hot buttons are you looking for in their responses that will enable you to guide the treatment that follows? Okay. So there's, although we have all these billions, probably even trillions of differences between people, there are two major categories. One is what's the person's background like in terms of their genetics? What are they, what do they have a predisposition to? Mm-hmm. So we want to know about the family history a little bit. Mm-hmm. The other thing is what, what are the environmental factors that have contributed to the build of their disease? Mm-hmm. So what was the template that the person started with? That's their genetics. Yeah. And then what are the environmental situations that have played upon those genetics to make those things go from uh, just being a genetic factor to actually being uh, manifested so mm-hmm. that it's yep. on top of it. So that's that's what we're looking for. Now, if I had to say there's two, two basic things in terms of environment that we're looking for, and there are more than two, but one of those is what is the person's home life like? Mm-hmm. The other is what is the person assuming that they, they are they are employed and that they're working outside the house or they're working inside the house, say that they're, t- they're a caretaker for kids. What is that like for them? And those are two very important preliminary factors, because if a person doesn't have a good home life, if a person or and or the person doesn't have a good work life, we have a very, very challenging situation. That's going to require quite a bit of extra work on our part. So, you know, if you hate where you work and you hate where you go back home to, how do you get that person well? That's a very difficult situation. So we want to uncover that immediately. Now, if the person may be very sick, but if they have a good home life, they get along with their spouse or they live alone, but they're happy living alone or they live with their dog or their cat, but they're fine with that. That's good. And if they like their job, which is that's great, too. So if a person likes their occupation and they like their home life, we have a good foundation level upon which to build. I can put that to one side. Right. Person's going through a very difficult situation socially where they're going through a divorce or they're contemplating divorce or they hate their husband or they hate their wife and or they hate their job. They're not happy when they're away from home. They're not happy when they're at home. And there's nothing I can do in the office until we get that situation at least partially rectified for them, or at least we see, we bring to the patient's observation that those are things that are going to need to be addressed. What's coming through really much louder than I had anticipated that's fascinating to me is how much of this is non-physical, non-what-you-eat, non-what-you-exercise, but emotional and stress-related. This is, this is obviously a great percentage of importance in how you treat the patient, right? Yes, except I would say it's not, it is nutrition related because if you have a patient who is very unhappy with their home life or is very unhappy with their job, is very unhappy with their neighbors who are always making noise, is very unhappy because they're going through an IRS audit, clinch, you can give that person the very best diets biochemically suited to them that you can, it's not going to digest well and it'll end up toxifying them. And on the other hand, you know, I see people who don't eat all that well, but have happy lives at home. Mm-hmm. They're happy 
their spouses are happy with their jobs, life mm-hmm. is good. Mm-hmm. And those people uh, oftentimes don't even get sick, or if they do, it's much easier to then go back in and, and just, okay, look, we're going to tweak this, we're going to tweak that, we're going to remove these foods, we're going to put you through a little detoxification plan. Uh, we see some environmental things here that need to be cleared up, but it's more a matter of tweaking. But until we get those basic things taken care of, it's, it's very, very difficult to help somebody. So let, let me just introduce here to when we talk about when we talk about nutrition, Dr. Tenner and I, we're not just talking about dietary factors. We're talking the diet is simply whatever you choose to eat. So if somebody lives on Coca-Cola and Fritos, corn chips, they're in a Coca-Cola and Frito corn chip diet. It's just that simple. And if they if they live on brown rice and sprouts, then they're on a brown rice and sprout diet. Whatever they eat, that's their diet. But that's only it's a very important part of nutrition, but is only one part of nutrition. And the other parts of nutrition are, first of all, digestion, which includes chewing your food and all the things that are involved in taking water and fat soluble products and making them water and fat soluble. So they're broken down into smaller and smaller water and fat soluble molecules so they can be absorbed. Next step is getting that into the blood through the intestinal membrane. Third step is getting assimilated into the cell itself. And the fourth step is getting the waste products out of the cell. We call that cellular excretion. And the last step is cellular elimination, rather. And then the last step is excretion through the bowels and the kidneys and the skin and the breath. Now, what what parts of the body are involved in the nutrition process? Well, everything is. There's not an organ or a gland in the body that's not involved in the nutrition process. So when I see people who are giving people dietary advice, that's fine and good. But when we get down to metabolism, we not only have to be able to give dietary advice to our patients, but we must understand gastroenterology in some depth. We must understand immunology in some depths. We must understand endocrinology in depth. We must understand psychology in depth, genital urinary factors. The whole body has to be involved because the whole body is involved, and this is the term we use with patients, in transforming food into human flesh. And in most people who are sick, there's a problem somewhere along the line where that food material, which came from the earth, is not being transformed into healthy cells. So when somebody comes to our office and they have psoriatic arthritis and they're covered with psoriatic lesions and their joints are highly inflamed, we ask ourselves, what is it about this patient that doesn't allow the transformation of food that comes from the earth into healthy skin? into healthy immune cells, into healthy joint linings. There is something within this whole context of the whole nutrition process, this transformation stage, which is not occurring efficiently. And it's our job to figure out what that is. Okay, good. Well, we're all excited to learn more about how that evolves in your in your practice. So let me recap as I've understood. A person comes in, they'll spend 90 minutes with the both of you in most cases. You'll ask a lot of questions about their personal history and you'll establish sort of predisposition factors and genetics and also environmental factors. So you'll look at how those predispositions played out in their life and how they may have triggered them through their lifestyle. And a lot of the questions surround their happiness and their stress levels, both at work where they spend a lot of their time and at home where they've got those interpersonal relationships. 
And you'll find in most cases, I would imagine at your clinic, that people come in and they've got those stressful stressful expressions at work or at home or both. And I imagine that that people who are doing tremendously well emotionally, uh, happy at work, happy at home, are not necessarily the sort of people that you see too often because they, uh, they may be not in such a bad state. Yeah, well, there are other factors that are involved too. I mean, those are two, you, you summed up much of what I said absolutely correctly. But we're looking for other factors too. And another big factor, and it's become more important now than it was when I started practicing, is environmental factors in terms of toxicology. Part of my training in public health is in toxicology. And so we're gonna wanna see what has the person been exposed to both through their personal habits, simple things like alcohol, coffee, and tobacco, recreational drugs, Mm -hmm. pharmaceutical prescription drugs, and occupational hazards where they may have become involved with variety of uh, heavy metals and various other chemical agents that they've been exposed to as part of either just their living environment or their work environment. And because there's so many different agents and chemicals out there, the average person, uh, even people who are you know, home, home, home takers and, and are staying at home, many of the ladies now are putting so many toxic things in their bodies, slathering themselves with cosmetics. Uh, guys do some of this too, of course. And the average person is taking a variety of over-the-counter drugs as well as foods that they're eating, which have many uh, additives and uh, pesticides and so forth in there. We have to track down those things, too, because those can also interfere with, uh, particularly with a number of enzymatic systems in the body, and interfere with the person's general health and their nutritional status. So that, that's the interview. We're looking uh, at, at social factors. We're looking at environmental factors. We're looking at lifestyle factors. We're looking at the history of the person in terms of who have they been to in the past, what steps have they taken, what's helped them, what's what's made them worse. And then the next step we're going to take is then to do a physical examination. Okay. Okay, great. And thank you for you know adding the toxicology aspect. It, um, when Dr. Tanner and I first had our conversation on the phone to set up this interview with you both, we talked about the influence of the drugs like pregnazone and, and, and other drugs that are involved in the, the conventional Western treatment. And so we'll get to that shortly and talk about you know, how we work with these added toxins in the body and how your approach might enable people to get off those. Um, but first, let's just continue the evolution of how the patient experience goes at your clinic. And let's talk about the physical exam. So let's continue with your example of psoriatic arthritis. And so tell us, take us a little bit further along the, the patient journey with the physical exam and, and, and thereafter. Okay. So our physical exam is going to involve taking all the patient's vital signs, which will include just simple things that most doctors do in their office, their, their height, their weight, uh, their, their blood pressure, their pulse rate. We check what's called perfusion, which is the amount of blood, which is actually reaching the ends of their fingers. We're looking at oxygen saturation. And now we're going to start putting our hands on the patient in terms of doing examinations of the joints. Uh, we're going to look carefully at the nails, an eye exam, a, a very careful exam of the oral cavity, because we can tell a lot by looking at the gums and the teeth and the tongue. I'm big on tongues. We can tell a lot about the patient's health by that respect, because here we have uh, the, the, the oral cavity we can open up. We don't have to open up the purse. We don't have to be invasive at all. And we can see, a, you know, at least the beginning of the gastrointestinal tract. 
and see what that GI tract may be doing and start getting some insights there. We work right on down. We're going to examine the thyroid. And then uh, it, it is my predilection that always do a careful abdominal examination on the patient. And that means a hands-on, careful auscultation, palpation, and percussion of the abdomen. And, and one of the things that's very interesting, Clint, is many of my older patients, I mean, people uh, 55 and upwards, will tell me, you know, it's been, and they've been to many doctors usually before they see us. It's been decades since I last remember a doctor ever putting his hands on my abdomen and actually doing an abdominal examination of me, uh, listening to my abdomen. Because most doctors, including gastroenterologists, don't even bother to do that anymore. They immediately start going for the colonoscopies and the MRIs and the CT scans. Okay, so you've covered so much content in just the last couple of minutes. I really, I'm really fascinated to learn more about each of those techniques. And if we can, I'd like to, you know, allocate that time. I'd like to know what are you looking for in the mouth? What are signs of positive health? Are you looking for a sign of bacterial overgrowth that's systemic and showing up in the mouth? Are we looking for crack or or lack of crack down the center of the tongue? Uh, The gums you talked about, inflammation. Please uh, share with us what, what are you looking for and what are the signs and how do these translate to what might be happening further down the gastrointestinal path? Well, we, we'd have to take probably an hour and a half to give you a, <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's a lecture in itself as to what you're actually looking for in doing an, an oral examination on somebody. But I, I can give you kind of an overview of what yes, we're please. looking for. We're going to look, first of all, at the health of the, of the teeth. Uh, we need to know, does the person have teeth that are sufficient to chew with? And I've had patients that come in, particularly when I had a rural, my first practice was in a rural area in in North Georgia. And I had patients come in, including one I remember very clearly of a lady who had no teeth and she didn't have dentures. And I said, well, where, how do you chew your food? She says, I don't. (laughs) And uh, so do you not have a set of false teeth? She said, oh, well, they were so uncomfortable. I couldn't use them. I, I stopped using them. And so I said, so what do you live on? So she said, Jello and uh, cream of wheat. Not too many people even know cream of wheat is cream of wheat and mashed potatoes. As I remember, she was mashed potatoes from a box. And uh, I said, pudding. She liked chocolate pudding. I said, well, I'm going to write you a prescription first thing before we do anything else. I don't write prescriptions per se. And I wrote a prescription to a dentist office who does dentures. I said, you go there. And she, she came to complain to me because she had a lot of GI distress and fatigue. Well, the way she ate and the lack of mm. nourishment explained a lot. I said, you get the dentures. I said, you start eating whole foods a little bit before you come back and see me. And then want you to return in two months and 60 days. So she went and this guy fixed, this dentist fixed up a nice set of dentures for her. She was able to eat. She came back in two months. About 70% of her gastrointestinal problems were gone. And she was feeling much better. She wasn't 100%, but she was significantly better. I said, so at that point, we were able to tweak the rest of her system and get her feeling well. But there was no way that she could break down her food, transform food into human flesh with what was going on with her. So we look at the teeth. We're looking at the gums. Some rheumatoid disease patients will have some degeneration of the gums. Sometimes we see a lot of recession with that. I don't want to scare your clients. If you have receded gums, you may just be brushing your teeth too hard. So it doesn't mean you have necessarily a problem. We're going to be looking for the, the, the cavities that they have, uh, caries, and uh, how many amalgams they have. If they have silver mercuries, we're going, to make a, we're going to make notation of that. And by the way, we don't recommend people getting their silver mercuries removed just simply because they have them. We have, 
we're going to then check and see if they have a number of them, if there actually is a toxic problem, because some people have three or four, they have a toxic problem. Other people have 10, 11, 20 of them and don't. So there's tests we do to determine, make that determination. We're going to look uh, at the tongue. Uh, are there fissures? What are those fissures from? What is the color like? What is the coating on it like? What are the size of the papillae? Are they evenly distributed? Do they have, does the patient have areas of the tongue gets, they get sore on them? Uh, and some of this also gives us some insight as to whether the patient may have allergies or not. And in our clinic, in my frame of mind, Dr. Tenner's frame of mind, allergies and autoimmune disease are really two sides of the same coin. Yeah. I don't see them as two separate things. Many of our patients who have autoimmune diseases, not all of them, certainly many of them had significant hay fever, asthma, or other allergic problems as, as a child. One of the things that most doctors, of course, don't do uh, that we do is that I also will smell the breath. And the patient doesn't, all, doesn't know it. I, know, I try not to make them aware of it, but as I have my, my, my stick in their mouth, tongue depressor, excuse me, I have, I have their tongue, tongue depressor in their mouth, um, I'm going down, I'm looking, I'm, I'm taking a quick whiff of it. Really? Yeah. Now, you can't teach somebody about smells, but I've been doing this for 40 plus years, and I, can, I have certain smells I can categorize what may be going on, not with absolute certainty, but with some certainty as to what may be going on in their gastrointestinal tract, they, or it could just be what they had for the last meal, too. But I can tell with some degree of certainty what some of the problems that may be going on there. For example, something which is well known is that patients who in fact have uh, diabetes or prone to diabetes go into ketoacidosis, and they will have a kind of a fruity, sweet smell to the breath. So we can, I can tell that by, by um, smelling the breath. Interesting enough, uh, you know, the, the doctors used to commonly do that. You won't see doctors mm. do that anymore, but mm. I'm kind of old school in that regard. Right. And I will smell the breath. Just as a side note, doctors also used to, and we don't do this, by the way, they used to also taste the urine. What? They used to huh. taste the urine because they could tell from that some of the yep. things were going out the patients. Thank God today we have dipsticks, <laughs> yeah. other chemicals reagents that we can use to analyze the urine. Yeah. But that's a lot of things that were very commonsensical and very uh, straightforward that they don't do today. And what they do instead is they order very expensive and more, more significantly expensive, very dangerous and invasive and harmful tests such as CT scans and colonoscopies and endoscopies where that information could have been easily obtained in much safer, non-invasive ways. Mm. Uh, we're going to look at the general color of the gums. We're going to look at the buccal cavity, the inside of the, the cheeks, see if there's lesions and sores and so forth in there. Is that enough? <laughs> yeah, that's great. And uh, and I want to move on to next how you do your abdominal investigation and get some more insights in the same kind of vein as what we just did then. But before we move out of the, the mouth area, can you just enlighten me? Um, how much can you tell from a bacterial viewpoint in terms of an overgrowth of bacteria by looking in the mouth is because this is something that's um, sort of common belief, but is it true? Oh, is it true that you can tell whether they have a small bacterial overgrowth of the small intestine? Right. In my opinion, no. I mean, right. you might you might get some indications of it, but you can't tell. If, certainly, I can't tell them with with absolute certainty if they have a, a SIBO, a small intestinal bowel overgrowth yeah. occurring just simply by looking at their tongue. Now, right. you can tell if they, have a, if they have thrush, if they have a lot of yeast growing in there, if right. that might be the situation. Right. But uh, 
what's going on in your duodenum as a result of a variety of factors that might lead to a small intestinal bowel overgrowth. You, I, I certainly can't. I don't think you can either. Let's, mm. You can't really right. tell for certain just by looking at the tongue. I've seen some correlation between uh, what a patient's tongue will look like and then what their test results look like, which we can, we'll can probably talk about a little later. But yeah. um, when you look at a patient's mouth and the tongue, for instance, is quite foul in terms of the, the coating on it yeah. or the breath is real foul, and it's a pretty good indication that food is not being digested well. And when food's not digested well, it will ferment or putrefy, which will create a toxic environment in the gut that can contribute to dysbiosis, which I know something you're interested in, and bacterial imbalances. And so when, when we see that with a patient, we oftentimes see positive test results that show us those very things. Not always, but more often than not. But we can't tell exactly where that problem may be occurring. You know, a small, small bowel overgrowth means by definition that you have an overgrowth of bacteria in the duodenum, the, particularly in the duodenal bulb in the first couple inches after that. And the GI tract is a pretty long place. And it basically starts with the mouth and ends with the rectum. And then you've got all these, you know, feet of colon and small intestine in between and accessory organs, the pancreas, the gallbladder, the liver. And so I, you can't really say, OK, you have a bacterial overgrowth. We can say there is indication here based upon this way the breath smells, upon the way the tongue looks and upon your symptoms that you have, that there is a likelihood that you might have a small bowel overgrowth or you have a dysbiotic state within your, in your bowel. And therefore, which will be the next step after the physical examination, we have determined by doing our case history and by doing our physical exam, what selection of laboratory tests we now want to run. Right. Yep, exactly. I see. I see. Okay. All right. There is so much to cover. Um, well, you ask one more one more thing. You had asked about the abdominal. Yeah, exam. I'd love to. I'd love to learn more about that. I'll tell you a lot about that. But there's one thing that we often look for in that, and, and I see Doctor Gover do it quite frequently with people. Is he'll percuss the abdomen, and you can, based on the sound that's given from doing that, you can tell whether or not the person has got a lot of gas or a lot of bloating in their GI tract. And we'll also listen to the bowel as well, and that can also be an indication in conjunction with some of the other signs and symptoms we hear from a patient that a test like a bacterial overgrowth test might be appropriate for them. Right. Okay. What else are you looking for there? Are you looking for any compaction or what else is going on with the physical exam of the abdominal? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is, of course, the patients in a uh, supine position, we have the abdomen exposed. We're going to just, to just kind of look at it from the side tangentially and see what the contours of it are. Uh, the second thing is that we're going to auscultate, I mean, listening to the abdomen with our stethoscope. And, and Clint, we do that first because once we start putting our hands on the patient's abdomen, we will change the bottle sounds to small, at least a small degree. Mm-hmm. So we're going to listen with the, with the uh, stethoscope first in every quadrant we're going to listen to it. And ba- basically what I'm listening to or for is normal bowel sounds, normal, we call borborygamy, sounds within within the intestines themselves. I wanna hear that there's normal pattern of flow going on down there. The second thing is that we're going to go in there and percuss the patient, and that's just going to involve taking uh, my my fingers and just hitting, hitting one finger upon another and listening for the bowel sound coming back to me 
And that will reflect, do we have a pocket of air? Do we have a pocket of something more solid or semi-solid? And also we can get kind of an outline of the size of some of the organs there to see if they're approximately normal or not, particularly the liver. The liver is one that I, I look for pretty carefully. And I can outline that just it's almost like sonar in a submarine. I can kind of outline it by, by using a, a percussion. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing we're going to do is to go a little deeper and to use palpation. And I'll do both a, a, a superficial palpation, superficial palpation first. I'm going to cover the entire abdomen with the person. I'll tell them to let me know if anything I'm doing causes them any discomfort. And if light palpation causes no discomfort for them, I'll go a little bit deeper with my fingertips. And in, in this regard, having done these for 40 years, plus also having a degree as a chiropractor, our fingertips, both myself and Dr. Tenner, are pretty sensitive. You know, when you're, when you're a chiropractor, they train you so you can feel a dime through, you know, 50 or 60 pages of a phone book. Because uh, you need to be, if you're, if you're palpating the spine, you need to be able to palpate uh, bony uh, changes, uh, structural changes. So we're going to feel very carefully the abdomen, and, and I taught this when I, when I taught at the chiropractic college, for any areas that are tender, and then we're going to make notes of that, any areas that we feel may be compacted or impacted, any areas that may feel warm to us, too, that there's a particular heat repression right, coming. Right, right, yep. Yep, wow. Okay, well, it's fascinating, uh, fascinating stuff, and thanks for, um, thanks for indulging me in going through the physical exam. Uh, it's fascinating, you know, as I said uh, you know, certainly a line of treatment that is lacking for 99.9% of people with rheumatoid or other or inflammatory arthritic conditions is to have their mouth examined and their abdominal area examined. These are completely overlooked. And even if we do see uh, natural therapists in conjunction with medical practitioners, it's still an area that, that is rarely considered. So it was fascinating for me and uh, I think, uh, you know, very interesting. We just we hit the highlights of those are not the only areas we look at. We look yep. we look at the the ears and we inside the ears we look at the eyes. We'll palpate uh, the thyroid gland and of course we if patients have joint pain we will palpate the, the joints. And then part of what we also will do on not all of our patients but most of them is we'll do what's called a biomechanical analysis. So in which case we're going to be looking at their spine not so much just from a viewpoint of a chiropractor an osteopath but what is the general biomechanical layout of the spine and part of what we're doing that for is to see if there's areas that may be contributing to or are being affected by whatever disease process is going on with the patient right okay all right thank you now as we move forward uh, now and we look at the next step in the treatment order you then mentioned earlier about these toxic elements in their life whether it be you know five coffees a day they're drinking alcohol and we talked, uh, mentioned earlier about certain drugs they're on. I'm interested to know if someone's taking some of these counterproductive medications that have been prescribed from their rheumatologist, particularly the discretionary ones like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and prednisone. Can you give us some, some uh, information about how you work with those patients who are on those medications? Because we know that those two that I mentioned are counterproductive for the gastrointestinal tract, causing leaky gut, inflammation, and so on. Um, interested in your comments around this area. When, when the patient comes in, Clint, uh, we ask them to bring with them um, 
uh, a chronological history, including a drug history of what they what they've taken and also current currently what what they're on. And it is a very important part and a very challenging part of, of the practice. And one of the important things, and I, I know you appreciate this, is that when the patient is sitting before us with these various pains and discomforts and fatigue and gastrointestinal symptoms, um, joint problems, whatever symptoms they may be having, that patient is not just that patient today that we're seeing. If that patient is, is 45 or 50 years old, that we're seeing the accumulation of 45 to 50 years of living sitting before us. And the patient, patients don't think like that because they're used to going to a doctor, doctor says, okay, what's bothering you? They say, I have a headache, I have this rash. The doctor says, okay, here, take this. Yeah. So it is whatever that symptom is, you're treating that today. We're not looking at the patient like that. That patient is 40, let's say 48 years old, they have a 48-year history of emotions. They have a 48-year history of taking drugs. They have a 48-year history of eat, eating habits. They have a 48-year history of working. They have a 48-year history of emotional ups and downs and all and, and, and thousands and thousands of meals. All that makes up what their cells are today. And so that's what's sitting before us. Not just what they're taking right now, but all the things that are in the background as well. And we try to explain that to patients because otherwise they don't really, it's hard for them to, to, to understand that we're not just going to address that patient as they sit there today on, you know, whatever the date is that day. They are 48 years of accumulated habits, insults that have now make up the composition of their cells, including whatever drugs they are currently taking. And so the patient may say to us, well, I took this drug and that drug and that drug, but I stopped that a week ago, as if that's no longer a problem, all right? But I, I said, okay, so you haven't taken steroids in how many days? Oh, it's been at least four days since I took any of that stuff. Yeah. And how many years did you take it? Uh, well, I've taken you know probably 30 or 40 courses over, over the past 20 years, uh -huh. but I don't take it anymore. But we're gonna have to work with that patient and help them to understand that that is part of their makeup at this point that we're going to have to address in order to try to reverse whatever chronic health issue that they have. Now, I'm going to go back just a second if I can, Clint. We did a physical exam after the case history. The next step we're going to do is to decide with the patient. We're, Dr. Tenner and I will usually go in the other room. We'll talk about the patient for a moment then come back with the patient and suggest them what laboratory tests we need to run. Right. And from that, we'll have some, not a complete necessarily, but we'll have some understanding of, of the toxicity issues the patient has. Right. We'll have an understanding of what specific things are going on in the GI tract. We're going to do a complete dietary history on the person. We're going to do temperature charts, diet histories, functional workups of, of how they're digesting fats and carbohydrates and uh, proteins. Uh, we're going to be looking at do they have some patients, do they have small bowel overgrowth going on? What's the degree of it? How are their adrenal glands functioning? I mean, there's there's literally hundreds and hundreds of tests we, we have to select from as to what we're going to do, including standard tests that involve looking at inflammatory indices, such as a high sensitivity cardiac reactive protein and sed rate, blood chemistries, blood counts, uh, lipid profiles, and so forth. So we have to come back, when we come back with the patient, after we've collected all that information, if the patient agrees to go forward, which was a period of about three weeks during the patient, and we're all collecting this information, at that point, we're going to start talking with your question, which is about the drugs, and how are we going to address that? 
because at some point, and some patients are on two or three drugs. Some of our patients, we had, we had one record where a patient was on 33 different prescription drugs all at one time. Now, when they get like that, we, we don't even know what we're looking at exactly. When we do a physical exam, are we looking at the patient? We're just looking at the drug reaction the patient had. Right, right. That is a lot to sort out. And here, Clint's, uh, I'm hoping not being too verbose, but there's something else to understand here, too. It's not just that the patient's taking one drug or three drugs or 10 drugs or 33 drugs. It's that they're taking a total load of this many different things in addition to the foods they eat, the water they drink, the ear they breathe, and the emotions they have. And all that is what the concept that I used to teach my students, we call the, the total load. What is that total load on the patient? Yeah. And with, if they're only taking three different drugs, it's still not just three drugs. It's one drug times the second drug times the third drug. So it becomes exponential. Wow. Wow. And okay, that's in, start, that's interesting. Start, that's interesting. Patients that are taking 10 or 15 or 20 drugs, which is not uncommon for us right. to see. They're taking one drug times two, times three, times four, times five. And you can look at any of these drugs, and they have many, many manifestations, many, many side effects. And what are the side effects when the patient is taking all these drugs together? A pharmacist cannot answer that question for you. Nobody can. Because it's not just that they can't just look at the drugs. All these drugs are interacting with the patient's own personal biochemistry as well. So this is a this is a very, very complex situation that not every not every patient understands that we have to try to sort out at that point. Yeah. But at that first report of findings when everything's presented to the patient, we are going to say, this is something that we need to start addressing. How are we going to address this? How are we going to go about it? What are you willing to do? Mm. Yes. Yeah. And do most of them go ahead? Yes. Yep. Yes. By that time, yep. the patient has made a, uh, a commitment. We, we run laboratory tests and so forth. It's very rare by that time that we're presenting all the findings to the patient and to, to back out at that point. They, they kind of, most people, by the time they've seen us, have been to multiple other doctors, sometimes 20, 30, 40 other doctors before we see them. We wish we'd seen them first because we could have prevented yeah. these things getting from so far advanced and complicated. And so they're willing to go ahead. So we can't tell the patient, get off this drug or get off that drug. We can only educate them as to how some of their symptoms, maybe all their symptoms, and it is sometimes the case, may be related to the taking of these drugs and how these drugs will complicate them from getting well. And then we have different categories of drugs. I know one that you're interested in us talking about is prednisone, which is a huge monkey on our backs and on our patients' backs. And it has to be done very carefully, both for clinical reasons and legal reasons, and the way that we help the patient to try to get off them. So we're going to put certain ideas in the patient's mind, but we're also going to tell them, we can't tell you to, to take a drug or get off it because we didn't prescribe it for you. But we're going to suggest to you that to get well, we're going to, you're going to need to gradually, not maybe overnight, but you're going to need to gradually reduce these drugs We'd like you to work with us and your physician to prescribe these drugs to get off them. You want to tell them about uh, the patient you were just telling me about the other day that had been on those drugs for so long, and now years later she's finally gotten off them. Oh, yeah. There's a, a patient that we uh, worked with. She came in about three or four years ago. Both of us, we, we really like this woman. She's a very nice lady. 
And when she presented, she was on 10 different pharmaceuticals and she had been on them for 30 years. These are, and these are all for depression and anxiety. Okay. 10 different ones. All yeah. ones prescribed by the psychiatrist. Yeah. <laughs> 30 years of 10, 10 different drugs, 30 years. So this was uh, three years ago when she first presented. And we, uh, the last we saw her was about six months ago or so. And during that time, we worked with her and she gradually, as we were supporting her from a nutritional and a biochemical and metabolic standpoint, gradually with her doctor's uh, guidance, reduced the drugs over a long period of time, over about two years. And after a two year period, she had she had gotten off all of them. But the interesting thing about that is that, you know, once you get off the medications, they just it's not like they just you're done with it. You know, all the, the accumulated residues of all those drugs were still stored up in her tissues. So even though she had gotten off those drugs, there was still a considerable withdrawal period that she was going to go through. And uh, she, one of the, the biggest complications that she had when she got up was getting off the drugs, which is a severe amount of nausea, which is a common side effect of a lot of those drugs and, and a common symptom that people will go through when they have drug withdrawal. And she, she experienced severe, for, severe nausea for about a six to eight month period. And gradually, as she continued, I mean, she was one of the most persevering patients we had. She was not about to give up. And she had accomplished so much. Um, she gradually, gradually over time, the nausea abated. And I just got a call from her a couple of days ago. And she said she's drug free, still drug free, doing well. Mm -hmm. uh, but this mm -hmm. was a three year process for this woman. Yeah. And a lot of patients are not willing to stick it out that long. But again, she had a 30 year history yeah, yeah. of drugs. So if you're on it for 30 years and you have to give back three years of your life to get well and then live the rest of your life drug free. I mean, she made the decision that that's what she wanted to do and she was successful. And she's a relatively young woman. She was, she's what she first came to us in her forties and forties. Do you always see the rule of thumb playing out, which is that the longer that someone has had a condition, the longer it takes them to heal? As a general rule, uh, that that's a topic if you want to explore at some point. I'd be happy to as to how long it takes most patients and what are what are the variables that are involved in overcoming or reversing yep. chronic disease. One of them is going to be how many drugs have they been on and how long have they been on them for. Interesting, right? Yeah. There's a, uh, there's a great article on our website. Um, along the top of the website at GoldbergClinic.com, there's a uh, on the on the menu bar. There's a tab called uh, Recommended Reading. I'm sorry, resources, and you'll get a drop-down menu that says recommended reading. And if, they, if uh, your audience or you click that link, it'll take you to a page that has a list of articles there. And there's an article there called The Time Factor in Recovery, yep. which discusses a lot of those factors that Dr. Goldberg was just alluding to. Um, and uh, I think it would be a good educational resource on that topic. Awesome. Awesome. And there is also the one on there that we discussed offline, uh, which is about prednisone. And it is about how you have coined the the phrase to the extent of, you know, it's good for the moment, but you will pay like hell later. And I think that everyone should spend the time to read that article, which is, you know, it's very raw, isn't it? It's very in your face. Look, this, this drug isn't going to be contributing to your overall health. In fact, it's probably working against you. And uh, if you want to improve to the extent that you probably do, it's easier to do so when you're not taking that drug. And so, you know, we have this conundrum where the drug is alleviating the symptoms but contributing to the underlying cause. And, it, you know, it is, as you said, a difficult decision for the patients to make, but, uh, but one that needs to be talked about, right? Yeah, so we, we, you're right. We tell them uh, take the steroids, just enjoy now, pay later. 
or as I say, pay like hell later, because you're going to pay very, very big time. And one of the ways that we address that, Clint, is simply to have the patient go to uh, the Internet and look up side effects of steroids. There's nothing good there. <laughs> There's just, you know, diabetes, yeah. Uh, yeah. mental confusion, thinning of, of the skin, uh, adrenal atrophy, osteoporosis. Yeah. The list just goes on and on and on. Yeah. But it's a very convenient way for medical physicians of, of any kind uh, to simply say, here, take this. And the patient goes home and, you know, a couple of days later, not always, but frequently they're feeling much better. They yeah. don't realize, though, so that they're going to pay for that two, threefold easily for the little bit of relief that they've had. Yeah. And not wanting to really labor this to death, um, but before we take a break and we, and we uh, uh, allow our listeners to also take a break, would you please uh, just give us a, an example of, um, of what might happen if someone were to taper off their, their prednisone and over what period of time do you normally advise them to talk to their doctor who prescribed that drug to them to try and come off that drug? Yeah, well, so people that come to our clinic have taken prednisone for varying lengths of time in varying quantities. We just had a patient come to us recently that uh, was in the hospital and uh, given, how many was it, was methylprednisone, how much? thousand? Yeah, it was given a thousand, a thousand, no, 5,000, 5,000, 5,000 milligrams of methylprednisone per day, uh, which is a humongous amount, because methylprednisone is prednisone on steroids. <laughs> And so and they were given this intravenously. And of course, they had a tremendous uh, kickback as soon as they left the hospital and started getting off of that. Yeah. So the average patient's usually starting, uh, whether it's an uh, inflammatory bowel disease or rheumatoid uh, disease, they're generally starting somewhere between 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 milligrams a day. Yeah. And they're, they're going through a what's called a medrol pack. Yeah. They're, they're going to be gradually tightering down by two and a half, five uh, milligrams every few days until they get down to a certain level. And then the physician will either keep them on a base level, perhaps five to 10 milligrams, or get them off it completely until they have the next surge of symptoms, yeah. Yeah. bone exacerbation, and then they'll put them back on again. And many of our patients have been on and off, on and off, on and off, yeah. on and off. Yeah. And some other patients, particularly with, with, with rheumatoid arthritis, uh, have been on continually, yeah. uh, continual amounts of it. Yeah. Not When I was first in practice, they were on just by itself. Now it's usually accompanied by some type of TNF-alpha uh, factor, TNF-alpha factor blocker, uh, Embrol, Humira, Remicade, uh, along with that. So... We tell them in conjunction with their medical physician to see about starting to lower that dosage gradually. We, you don't want them to just go from 60 milligrams a day. They've been on for three weeks and go to nothing because they can literally throw their system into shock. Generally, it is considered safe to, to drop probably five at most uh, eight or 10 milligrams per week. Right. We get it off as quickly as they can, but in a safe way. I think the key claim when we when we work with people who have been on prednisone is that as they're starting to withdraw with the guidance of their doctors, we're working with them at the same time to support them so that they can they can gradually wean off of it successfully. I mean, if a patient were to just gradually get off prednisone and not make any changes to yeah. what they're doing, yeah. I mean, patient, regardless of what, whether we're working with them or not, there's going to be some kickback when they get off drugs. They're going to have some discomfort because the symptoms have been suppressed from the drug. 
Yeah. So the question is, can how how can we be as supportive as possible to try to minimize any the withdrawal they're going to have as much as possible, so they can get over that hump and start rebuilding themselves. So we usually we work with people pretty intensely during that time. The other thing I think is important too, and just in my experience working with people that are withdrawing from prednisone, is that they they not only need to have the right guidance, but they need to have I mean they need to have their hand held throughout the process, so they understand what to expect. A patient that understands the steps they're going to be going through, the bumps that they're going to have along the way, and then have the right support and guidance is much more likely to be successful than doing it on their own. Yeah. So I think that's where having you know practitioners like Dr. Goldberg and I in their corner can really make the difference between being successful and getting off prednisone and getting well, or relapsing and having to get back on prednisone and starting the process all over again. Yeah, and that's a really great point Dr. Tenner's making, and, and patients are, because uh, we keep ourselves so that the patient has access to us with ease. Dr. Tenner, is this, is this a normal thing I'm going through? Should I, what, what should I be expecting? And to have somebody hold your hand through that is very important. And as Dr. Tenner uh, very rightly pointed out, we're holding their hand, but we're also telling them certain things to do, and they're not that complicated, such as we need them to get to bed early. We need them not to push themselves too hard while they're getting off the prednisone to get as much rest and sleep as they can. To get some sunlight exposure, we usually will have these patients because uh, of the effect that uh, prednisone has, steroids have on the connective tissue of the body, basically causing it to break down. We want them to usually to be on some level of vitamin C during that time with some bioflavonoids and so forth. So we're giving a little, little support in, in that fashion. Um, and, and as I mentioned, getting out in the sun and fresh air is very important. And to understand that this is a stress they're going through. And so they need to try to back off other stresses that they're on during that time. Right. Yeah. And, and patients with, with the best of intentions will do things that are oftentimes quite contraindicated, such as, well, I felt so good while I'm taking the steroids, I'm going to start lifting weights. Okay. And I'm all for a healthy person lifting weights. But when you have somebody where you have a steroid, which is catabolic in its activity, meaning that it's breaking down tissue, to go out there and, and start doing barbell curls and bench presses and squats is, is totally contraindicated at that point. And it's going to put, mm -hmm. put them at some risk of damaging themselves. So we say, look, for right now, you got to retreat from the battle so you can come back and win the war. So you're going to have to rest. And, and this is, is, a, is a, a difficult thing for people to understand. And even if they understand it, it's difficult for them to employ because people usually think of discipline as being like a Rocky movie. Remember the original yeah, Rocky movie? Of course. And Rocky gets up in the morning, drinks his dozen eggs, and yeah. it's dun, 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 yeah. dun, dun. He's punching the bag, he's running, he's lifting weights, he's, in, he's sparring. And the scenario is you're following him along on his road to become the next heavyweight champion. Yeah. But that's not what real discipline is about necessarily. That kind of discipline lots of people have to go and do something like running and jumping and lifting weights and boxing. Lots of people can do that. But what takes much greater discipline in, in our minds is not to do anything, to do very little to allow your body to recover because rest in almost any kind of health issue Clinton, as you, I'm sure you know this, is the single most important thing to have physical and emotional rest and to just back off because people are constantly, patients want to do something. They want to take something. They want to go out and exercise. 
They want to get, they want to eat more, they write things, but they want to eat. And to tell a patient, look, we want you to just spend a lot of time in bed. We want you to get out in the sunlight. And we don't want you to do a whole lot of other stuff right now. That's a very bitter pill for most people to swallow. And that is what requires a lot of discipline. And probably ties in very well with your retreat, right? To enable people to have that experience as well. You've got the retreat at Brooks, uh, which we can talk about on the uh, next episode, which can also tie into helping patients get well to enable them to have a, a place to go where they can be calm, they can spend some time outdoors, and they can connect again with nature, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. All right. Well, thanks so much. Uh, let's uh, let's wrap up this episode here as we've covered all of the ways in which you uh, handle patients when they come to your clinic, looking at all of their background through a long conversation and gathering that information, physical exam, and then following that up with uh, ordering from a large selection of different certain tests, finding out the right tests for them, and then uh, having a hard conversation with them about the toxicity that's in their life and how eliminating some of that toxicity might advance their healing. Thank you so much, and we'll chat again on the next episode. Thank you, Clint. Thank you, Clint. You've been listening to The Patterson Program. For more information, visit pattersonprogram.com.